an epidemic novel right now. Yeah. And I know several people who are or yeah. were. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We will not censor ourselves, so please consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 46, an interview with David Levine. Uh, today's special guest uh, is known to Chaz and Karen, but I just met him this last World Fantasy Con in L.A. Welcome, David. Hello. Glad to be here. How long have you guys known each other? Did you meet each other at conventions? or? Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of where was the first place we met. Might conceivably have been at a U.K. World Con. Um, it was Brighton. It was the World Fantasy in Brighton. World Fantasy, yes. We had, okay. we had dinner with you and Kate. And a whole bunch yeah, of other people. I, I think I had met David at least before then. Yes. Well, yeah. we yeah we've we've been moving in the same circles for some time certainly. Yeah, absolutely. You uh, before you you published your trilogy you used to be involved with a fanzine, right? Ah uh, yes. Uh, yeah, my wife and I did a fanzine called Bento. Uh, it was a little pocket size zine, uh, a quarter sheet of paper, um, or, or you know the folded a folded down. Uh, the quarter the size of an eight and a half by 11. Um, we did about one issue a year for mm, 25 years, long time. Um, and, uh, and it was just, it was just our little personal zine of our, of, of whatever was on our mind at the moment. Uh, we basically did one each year for the world con and just handed it out to our fanzine friends. Neat. Is that, is that was your first, how you got started in writing, or where did you get started in all of this? What are, you, what are your mythic origin stories? My mythic origins, um, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the misty vastness of time, I, like a lot of uh, science fiction writers, uh, have been writing uh, since I was wee. Um, I had a, I mean, I've got, I have uh, in a box, which is actually sitting just at my left hand right now, a bunch of my juvenilia, including a, uh, including a science fiction novel that I wrote in fourth grade. Uh, that's definitely not the first thing I wrote, but it was the longest. Um, and I wrote, I wrote stories uh, for my English classes in, in grade school and middle school and high school and college. Um, oh, in college... Pause. I was going to say pause for a second because we are dying to know the topic of the fourth grade story, novel. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, it was a it's space opera, um, and it's about a uh, it's about a group of people who have gone out on an exploratory mission, um, and they find a uh, they find a civilization where the uh, where they find a planet where the civilization has died out, and the only remaining uh, the only remaining people on the planet are a few aliens who have been in suspended animation for thousands of years. Awesome. How long is it? Uh, two spiral, two spiral notebooks full. Ooh, that is like dedication to the craft at a very young age. Good for you. Yeah, fourth grade, in in an almost almost unreadable minuscule all caps font, which is which is how I which is how I write. <laughs> wow. Well, I am impressed because the very first novel I attempted, I was in the third grade. I got about two paragraphs in, and I said, I don't really know how to write a novel, and just stuck to poetry for the next, you know, four or five years. Oh, okay. we, have, we have talked a little bit about how a lot of people start with poetry being their dark, dirty secret. Did you write a lot of poetry? Not at all, no. No, I've never been a Ooh, poet. Ooh, you are breaking the mold. Yes. Well, and, and the, and, um, yeah, no, I've never been a poet. And really, I'm not, I don't have a lot of embarrassing juvenilia. I mean, 
I mean, there are definitely some pacing and characterization issues, but for fourth grade, it's not bad. But I never wrote like like I never I never wrote embarrassing fanfic or 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 erotica written from the perspective of somebody who had never had sex. Um, so uh, yeah, so there's plenty of really embarrassing juvenilia out there, but my my juvenilia is not particularly embarrassing actually. But what happened but, when you got when you got to college? Did that change? So when I got to college, um, I took a I took a science fiction course, um, and actually we had um, Algis Budras uh, came in and gave us a guest lecture one day. He he lived in town, um, and uh, people. I'm sorry. Where did you go to college? Washington University in St. Louis. Ah. And um, and the um, a lot of people said this stuff is pretty good. You should submit it. Uh, I didn't get around to doing that. And after I got out of college, I wound up work as a, working as a technical writer. Um, and when I became a technical writer, my fiction writing brain just completely dried up. I didn't write a word of fiction for over 20 years until I changed from being a technical writer into being a software engineer. And at that point, even though I was still typing every day, suddenly I was able to think in, to think in fiction again. So what happened was is that I had, I had 20 years of experience in, in writing professionally, which meant that all of those skills about formulating sentences and how to, how to, uh, how to punctuate and spell and grammar and paragraphing and how to write to an outline and how to write to deadline, all of those writing skills I had honed for 20 years. And then when I finally started to be able to write fiction again, I added the skills of, of being a fiction writer to the skills of being a nonfiction writer. And I wouldn't recommend this. Uh, I wouldn't recommend this as a way of learning to write, but I think it worked pretty well for me. Well, I, don't think, I don't think anyone actually recommends the way they, <laughs> it's all yeah. skewy one way or yeah. another. Well, did, you, did, did you sort of invest in courses and things, or did you just learn by doing? I went to Clarion West. Um, yeah, when I was, uh, so in, I started being able to write again in 98 and I wrote like two or three stories and I decided that I, that I had a sabbatical coming up. Uh, I worked for Intel, you had a sabbatical every seven years and I had a sabbatical coming up and I told my wife to her great surprise that I wanted to spend my sabbatical at Clarion. Um, in order to be sure that I got in, I, subs I applied to Clarion, Clarion West, and, um, and uh, Odyssey. Uh, and I actually was accepted at all three, and I decided to go to Clarion West because I would rather spend the summer in, in Seattle than in East Lansing. I believe that is probably a sensible decision. Um, so uh, do you need to talk a bit about Clarion? Have we talked about Clarion before, Jeannie? We have indeed, but it never hurts to get somebody else's perspective. Mm -hmm. It was an incredible learning experience, and uh, I was actually miserable. Um, I, had, I had big social interaction problems with the other students. Um, a big part of the problem was is I had, just, I had just come out of a job that was extremely difficult for me. Uh, I spent a year as a manager, and it was absolutely the worst year of my professional life, is I was not cut out for management. I hated it, and I don't feel I did a very good job. Um, so I, I 
stopped that job, went off to Clarion and came back to be a, uh, to be an individual contributor again. And I was much happier in my job. So I was really unhappy in my job. Um, I was desperate to be loved. I really, really needed people to accept and love me. And it was one of those situations where the harder you try, the worse it gets. Yeah. Um, so I had bad interactions with my fellow students. Um, and I am certainly to blame in that as much as, as much as anybody. Um, but so apart from the fact that I was absolutely miserable, I learned so much. It was a fantastic learning experience, and I had some excellent instructors. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, it's, it's six weeks of fairly intensive interaction, isn't it? Yeah, I was, I was averaging four hours of sleep a night. Right, yeah. Um, so who were your, who were your, who were your, your, your tutors? Um, let's see. Um, Man, it's been twenty. It's been twenty yeah. years. I could. I used to be able to just rattle them off. Um, we've got. I, okay, I know for sure. I had Candace Jane, Candace Jane Dorsey, and Pat Murphy, um, uh-huh. and um, Jeff Ryman. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's great. He's a fabulous human being. He's yeah. he's such. I mean, he's he's my sort of. He's my oldest friend in in the entire sort of um, SF community. Um, and, and I just, you know, I've, I've known him 30 odd years. He is an, uh, he is an absolute sweetie. Um, and David Hartwell was the, was oh, the yeah. editor and Carol Emmeschweller. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. then on the first week we had, um, John Crowley. Ooh, oh, wow. wow. And he was co-teaching with Paul Park. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Now it's not the... I mean, I mean, I'm very happy. I'm very happy with the. Uh, I'm very happy with the team that I got, uh, and I learned so much in so many different ways from all of them. Um, it seems to me that in more recent days, not only has the has the teaching staff become a lot more diverse, um, but also there are just bigger names right now. Like, like there was nobody when when I went to Clarion West in 2000, there wasn't anybody in the field whose name was as big as George R. R. Martin or Neil Gaiman is today. Yeah. Um, the biggest name, I think, on any... Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, when I was at Clarion West, at Clarion East, they had... Um, um, oh, uh, uh, time, uh, time considered as a, as a helix of oh, semi-precious stones. Delaney. Yeah, Delaney. They had Delaney, and Delaney was fierce. He uh-huh. was he was extremely he was extremely hard on them. Um, at the time, Delaney was known for going around at the end of his week and saying, "You're going to make it. You aren't going to make it. You aren't going to make it. You're going to make it." He doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> that but, sounds but like what was, they do at law school. Look to your left. Look to your right. One of these people is going to be gone in the end of a year. <laughs> yeah, but he was literally telling individual students whether or not, in his opinion, they were going to make it. Nice. Telling them in class. Um, so yeah, <sighs> no, he was kind of a harsh instructor. So I was, I was, in some ways, I regretted not having him, had him an instructor. As and in other ways, I was glad not to. Well, you you could have had Harlan. So, you know, in fact, because the, the story is one of his students, he, he tore apart her story and, you know, said she would shit and go, you know, rip your head off and die. It was just horrible to her. So was she that Connie Willis? Um, I don't remember her name. But I think she only sold one story. She went home, wrote, fuck you, Harlan Ellison, put it on a piece of paper above her typewriter, wrote a story, turned it in the next day, and he said, oh, can I buy this for the next Dangerous Visions? So, and it's still unpublished. No, 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 the, the next one, not the last one, the next one. Ah, again, okay. Again, again, Dangerous Visions, yes. Yeah, okay. It's in there. 
that's how I know about it because I read the book. So I, uh, Harlan, I, Harlan just, is a specific example of a of a personality type. I really can't. I, re, I really can't, I really despise. But it's it's hard because that little bit of oh, I will show you can either really make somebody or really turn them off entirely. And there's just no way to know which that person's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you got, let's see, you mentioned uh, George R. R. Martin and Neil Gaiman, which I saw that you had also had well, a wild card story published. And yes. As you yes, know, I'm... Neil got turned down. So we're just saying clearly. <laughs> Wait, what did Neil get turned down for? Well, he brought about this idea of a character named Sandman and he was a nobody and George said, I don't know. I don't think it'll sell. Okay. Wow. So. I, I have I have been working I have been working with George for um, in quite a few years now I think uh, over ten years certainly um, and he is one of the best editors I have ever worked with he has an amazing ability to look at a story and just kind of poke at one little place in such a way he'll give you he'll give you like a one sentence comment that'll cause you to completely rewrite the story in such a way that it's ten times better he's he's an amazing editor nice. Um, but um, but I I was a wild cards reader back from the beginning of the series, um, and so when I was when when I was and and I have I had met George several times uh, at conventions. Uh, here's a funny story. I actually brought him a book to sign at a Worldcon and discovered that I had already had him sign it. Uh, because that particular book was was very important to me when I was in college. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, Dying of the Light, um, oh, yeah. his first novel. Yeah, an amazing yeah. book. Um, so so I had I had the I had the balls uh, to go up to him at a party and saying, "Hey, I'm interested in writing for World Cards," and and he said, "Well, we're not ta- we're not taking any nobody, we're not taking any new people right now, but I'll get back to you." And and he got back to me like a year or two years later, um, and so there was a whole audition process. Um, and I passed through that and actually got a, you know, got a character accepted. That character didn't appear in Wild Cards for over ten years. I wound up writing about other characters. Um, but people ask me, how did I get into that? How did I get into Wild Cards? And I say, I went up to him and I asked. And in talking with a lot of my friends, I'm realizing how much privilege I had to do that. You know, as a white guy, I had the I had the the self confidence. You, you know what they say. You know, have the self confidence of an of an of an of an un, un, of an of an, uh, of an ordinary white male. Yes, yeah. have the self confidence. I am that mediocre white male. Um, <laughs> and so I had I had the bravado to walk up to George and ask. And I don't think I've realized that that telling my friends who do not have the privilege that I do to try doing that may not serve them well. But there are plenty of people who, because they they don't have that kind of privilege, if they try that kind of thing, they'll get slapped down. So I'm realizing that that many of my friends can't get away with what I did because they don't have my standing in society. Yeah. Um, um, backpedaling a moment, um, had you been published when you proposed yourself as a, as a wild card writer? Yes, I did. I may even have had a Hugo at that point. I certainly uh, had a Hugo no, nomination. Well. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, that sounds like what Kevin Andrew Murphy did. I don't know if he, if he, I think he just sent a story to him or something like that. Okay. It's kind of out of the blue, you know, one of those things. And he was, he was accepted. I don't even know if he'd had that much published, but yeah, he did something similar to what you did was say, I want to be in wild cards. And he had a character accepted. 
Yeah. And the next, the next crop of, uh, the next crop of writers to go in, he tends, he tends to bring in people in groups of, of, of like, like two to two to three, two or three, or maybe even four at a time. And the next several crops after me, he was very definitely trying to increase the diversity uh, of the wild cards writers room. Um, that's when Marianne Mo and Raj came in. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I like her. Yeah. I I was going to say, I want to use a question that we've asked other people and you may have already answered it for me describing technical writing. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you are a plotter more than a pantser. I definitely am. I definitely am more of a plotter than a pantser. Um, what I have found, so I've been doing this for 20 years now. And it is so weird for me to realize that because I still think of myself as a newer writer. Um, but nonetheless, I have, been, I have been doing this for over 20 years. And that's just the fiction writing part of my career. And um, I have discovered that the, the more experience I get, the more of a pantser I become. Yay! I still outline. I still outline, but I'm able to I'm able to outline with fewer and fewer bullet points in my outline, taking longer and longer leaps uh, to the point that I can actually pants a whole short story. And I damn near, I, I started off my current novel work in progress um, just just starting. Uh, admittedly, after I just started, I had to drop back. I had to drop back and plot. Um, but I definitely can pants a whole short story now. And I believe that pantsers also become more plotty um, as they get more experience that, that basically you, you start in a place, but you tend to, people tend to, uh, accrete more and more, uh, bits and pieces onto their writing process until everybody's writing process looks like a kind of a collage, uh, with, with plotty bits and pansy bits and, uh, and other, other kinds of bits so that they're all different, but in some ways they become more similar to each other. I, I love that as a theory. I'm not sure that I subscribe to it. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I may just be an outlier, um, but I, I was a plotter when I started because um, I had to be because nobody would commission a novel that didn't have a plot. Um, so my first three novels were plotted quite carefully. Um, but then the the third one that was the question I was going to ask you um do you, i do you feel confident about abandoning an established plot if the story wants to move away from it yes um i have uh i have very often found that well one thing I, will i abandon a plot i have a story that i wrote and really didn't work it contained some some offensive some offensive gender stuff <laughs> and i kept the i dropped the magic system mm-hmm. i changed one of the main characters to somebody else mm-hmm. uh, i changed the setting mm-hmm. um but i took the same the same basic idea the basic idea of that story was uh kind of kind of looking at uh, Werner von braun in the united states yeah. Uh, the idea of a uh, the idea of somebody coming, th- somebody doing developmental work. It, this one was magic, not science fiction, but still somebody doing developmental work um, for what had been an enemy an enemy power. Um, and and so this is somebody who has complicated allegiances. And in this particular case, I had my main character, um, his wife, who was an equally 
um, an equally accomplished magician uh, was doing the same thing he was for the enemy power because they both been they both been captured uh, by two different enemy powers, and so I I dropped almost everything and built an entirely new story with a new magic system and 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 a different relationship between the main characters uh so in some ways it's still the same story but in other ways that that the original version of that story i think could perhaps be um be turned into yet a third story um and be saleable did you make all those changes on the fly or did you replot i i redrafted that one yeah so i have a question do you think the time you spent actually writing software affects whether you are um, a panther or a potter? I don't think anybody who is a software engineer could really be a panther. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, speaking as a software engineer, I agree with you completely. I write yeah. the same way I write my software. You've got to, I know where it starts. I know where it has to end. And I write each kind of subroutine as we go along, and those are the scenes. And yeah. I have to, you know, but I have to, I have to have kind of a. Yeah. It's got to work that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutes. I, I don't. I don't like to use absolutes, but I think it's fair to say that if you have the kind of brain that makes you a good software engineer, that brain is not going to be happy with with running with with trying to write as a as as a pantser. Yeah. I don't know. Every once in a while, I have these Technicolor three-hour dreams, and then I wake up and just start writing them, and there you are. <laughs> it's, it's an, it was a novel because I watched it. It was like a movie. It's still a plot. You just didn't come up with it consciously. That's true. Yeah. That's true. yeah. Whereas I, I think, I mean, it, a pantser and a discovery writer are not exactly the same thing, but they have a lot in common. That pantsers tend to only see as far ahead as their, as their headlights, um, that they don't that generally have a roadmap. I thought that was a discovery writer. Mm-hmm. The, road, the, the seeing as far as your headlights is a discovery writer, you're saying? I'm yeah. Getting, we're, we're, getting, I'm, we're getting, there's more than two. Oh, my God, I can't <laughs> keep it straight. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm, okay, I'm, a, I'm a total pantser. Um, if you give me a title and a first line, then I'm happy. Oh, first um, lines are hard, though. Well, first mm-hmm. lines are fun. Yeah. That's where the story comes from. Yeah. Um, it leaps out of, out of that initial movement. Yeah, I very often will indeed uh, start with a first line and have an ending in mind. Yeah. And I can't proceed unless I have an ending in mind, which is not to say that that's always where I wind up. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's and absolutely. also that, that, first, that first line. Okay, so my story, Charlie the Purple Giraffe, was acting strangely. That was the first line. And the problem is, is that as the story grew, it no longer made sense as a first line. So I, I changed it to the title so I didn't have to get rid of it completely. <laughs> So, yeah. so all of these things you've kind of flirted around with one way or another. Tell me what you think about the relationship between the story, the plot, and then add the narrative in there. Okay, very, very briefly. This is, this is an idea that I've been noodling on for some time, um, and I'm not really sure if it has any predictive value, but a story I think of as a bunch of colored beads hanging in four-dimensional space. Okay, and these beads could be characters, they could be incidents, they could be settings. Like, think about the story of Hamlet. It has the to be or not to be speech. That's a bead. It has the murder of Hamlet's father. That's a bead. It has the sword fight between uh, Hamlet and, uh, and Laertes. It's got, the, uh, it's got the, the, the play is the thing. And then you have the play itself. Okay, so you, you recognize that all of these things, as I'm talking about them, are components of the story Hamlet. But I've just given them to you in random order. 
those are the beads just sort of hanging in space. Okay. Now, each of these beads has a relationship in four space to all the other beads. Uh, for example, you can, in three space, you can imagine that the, uh, the scene with, with Hamlet confronting his mother takes place upstairs from the, um, from, from the sword fight, uh, but, but like several days earlier. Okay. So that's what I mean about, about, about things having a relationship to each other in four-dimensional space, that some things happen at the same time, at the same place, uh, for example, the um, uh, Hamlet is talking with, um, I forget who he's talking with right before he stabs Polonius. Okay, and the conversation, Gertrude. and the thank you. So Hamlet is talking with Gertrude, and then he stabs Polonius. And those are two different incidents that happen in the same place at slightly separated times. Whereas there may be other incidents that happen at at the same time in different places. Okay, so now you've got all these, you've got all these incidents just sort of hanging in space. And now you take, uh, imagine that each one is not just a gem, but a bead. And you take a, a, a string and you thread it through those beads in plot order. Okay. Now the thing about a plot is a plot is always chronological because the thing about a plot is that it has to do with, um, with this happened because that. Um, fairly typical thing uh, that people say about writing is the king died and then the queen died is just a pair of incidents, but the king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. So plot is all about this happened because that. So because of those causal connections between incidents, you can thread the different items together. Like for example, Hamlet wouldn't have stabbed Polonius if he hadn't heard him, uh, and and Hamlet and, Polon and Polonius wouldn't have hid behind the uh, behind the heiress in the first place if Hamlet hadn't had that conversation with Ophelia. So these there, it's not a, it's not a single line. Uh, there can be there can be branches and reconnections, uh, but everything, all of the incidents are connected together because of a causal relationship. And if you have incidents that are part of the story, but are not connected by causal relationship to any other part of the story, then they feel extraneous and often vanish during the editing phase. And then finally, so the plot now consists of all these beads strung together in always chronological order. It has to be chronological because unless there's time travel involved, um, causality always goes in a, in a forward time direction. Now you take these beads and you straighten them out and maybe you cut some of the strings and you lay them out in one line. And the line is not necessarily chronological. You can take, you can take like a string of beads indicating a series of incidents and then put it before something that happened. Uh, I mean, you can put it after something that happened uh, later. Uh, that's a flashback. So you take the beads, you take the beads, which are now strung um, in a, in not a single strand, uh, and you cut them into, into sections of single strands, and you lay them all out in order, and that's your narrative. So things that happen, so if A happens before B, um, then A could come before B in the narrative, or A could come after B in the narrative. And furthermore, something that is part of the story, such as in the example of Hamlet, um, Hamlet's uncle murdering his father, that's part of the story, and it's at the beginning of the plot, but it doesn't appear on stage at all. It's only referred to. So, so the, the, the plot, so the, the incidents are just things hanging in space. The plot is a causal and chronological connection, and the narrative incorporates the plot, but not necessarily in chronological order. Okay, I really like that. 
Um, I think I think probably you're stringing you're stringing your beads on elastic rather than string. Yeah. There, there needs to be a certain given stretch. Yes. Um, 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 and and do you? It leads me to a question: Do you write linearly from beginning to end, or do you cherry pick, or do you write a lot of things and then weave them together? What do you do? My writing process writes in narrative order. Excellent. But I have the plot in chronological order in my head or, possi- or possibly in notes. Yeah. Um, because I think that writing in narrative order is important in the same way that I believe that the most productive way to read most series is in publication order rather yeah. than internal chronology. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Although if you're going to watch Babylon 5 and you've never heard it before and all of your friends know it, it's okay to watch in the beginning first, I think. <laughs> which, I'm just sorry, saying. Which, which episode? Which episode is in the beginning? In the beginning was kind of like the one-hour movie they did, where the Alpha Centauri is talking to his his wee children or grandchildren, and oh, this is how it all began. I think they and, filmed it at the end, and they filmed it kind of at the end. So that made me actually want to watch the whole thing. Hmm. So, okay. and and. I, and the only other thing I was going to say is I love that analogy, and it made me, as you were talking, I was picturing the cloud atlas in which yeah. many things were <laughs> all going on in little. Those weren't really so much as a string bead necklace as one of those woven bead creations like Madeline makes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or a, um, or a wampum belt. Or a wampum belt, as you Many, say. many beads on many, many strings. Well, I didn't want to leave this before we talked about and pimped out your trilogy. And it's a trilogy, or do you have more? Arabella of Mars? Arabella of Mars is a trilogy, complete in three books. Uh, Arabella of Mars, Arabella and the Battle of Venus, Arabella, the Traitor of Mars. Um, it was, uh, I originally wrote book one as a standalone. Um, but during the process of workshopping it, uh, many of my writer friends said, you know, the first thing they're going to ask you if, this, if you sell this is, do you have anything else uh, in this universe? And so I sketched out, uh, I did like a one-page outline of, of a book two and a one-paragraph sketch of a book three so that when, uh, when I was approaching publisher, I was approaching a publisher and they said, hey, we like this. Do you have anything else? I was able to say, why, yes. And yeah. so I got a three-book deal. Um, and I would definitely recommend that if you are, if you have a book with any kind of series potential at all, that you give some thought to that. Well, the three-volume novel was mentioned highly by Oscar Wilde in The Importance of Being Earnest. Mm-hmm. Well, it isn't a three-volume novel. It is unlike, uh, unlike Lord of the Rings, which is uh, one story told in three volumes, although if you look at it internally, it's actually six shorter volumes. Um, but, uh, and and uh, a Song of Ice and Fire is definitely one humongous story, and God knows how many volumes it's eventually going to be. Um, but, um, but Arabella was conceived as a standalone, and then I wrote the second and third volumes, each one... Not, I was hoping to make them completely standalone. They aren't standalone, but you could stop reading at any point um, and have a satisfying conclusion. It is not one story in three volumes. Have you, have you, have you, have you thought at all about writing um, sort of um, marginalia around that world, like short stories or whatever? Yes, and as a matter of fact, I have published two novellas uh, set in the same universe. What did I know um, this? What are they called? Uh, one of the, let's see, the first one was in, uh, was in Old Mars, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. It's called The Wreck of the Mars Adventure, and it is the story of the first Englishman on Mars in the 1600s. Uh, the other one is called 
um, The End of the Silk Road, which was written for Old Venus, uh, but not accepted. Um, but I published that one in FNSF, and that one takes place in the 1930s in the same universe. Well, I will be putting links to all of your stories and the interesting things and fascinating people we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer emails, so if you have any questions for David, please feel free to write to us and we will make sure that he gets you an answer. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McAfee-Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Thank you so much for coming with us today, David. Thank you. Thanks, David. And thank you guys for listening out there in the horrible time of cholera that we all struggle through. Yes. Hang in there. <laughs> <laughs>